0: In other words, we assume that if someone has been successful, there must be something, some cause for us to negatively judge that person's character or maybe negatively judge what kind of a person they are more generally. Um, We assume there must be something wrong. I think that might be connected with one of the seven deadly sins, not in all cases, but I think it could be connected with one of the seven deadly sins, which is envy. And I think one of the keys to that is that we have a very hard time genuinely taking joy in other people's success.
1: Welcome to the Acton Line Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Zhaja, producer. You've heard of the seven deadly sins pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth. Each is a natural and reoccurring human weakness that impedes happiness. In addition to these vices, there are seven deadly economic sins. They too wreak havoc in both our personal lives and in society. They can seem intuitively compelling, yet lead to waste and lost prosperity. Dylan Paman, Acton's research fellow and executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality, sat down with James Otteson, author of Seven Deadly Economic Sins, to discuss his lecture on this very topic during Acton University 2022. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.
2: Welcome to Acton Line. My name is Dylan Pomann, executive editor of the journal Markets of Morality and a research fellow at the Acton Institute. And I'm joined today by Dr. James R. Odison, professor of business ethics in the Mendoza College of Business at the University of Notre Dame. Dr. Odison is the author of several books, including Seven Deadly Economic Sins, which is the topic of our interview today. All right. So I want to I want to begin uh, with a question uh, about your, your talk, which is based on your book, uh, Seven Deadly Economic Sins. Um, And my background is historical theology. uh, So I want to start actually with just by defining some terms. So what is sin and what makes a
0: sin a deadly sin? And how are you using those terms? That's a good question. So in the context of economics, um, calling something a sin is a little bit raises some eyebrows. (laughs) Um, So... Um, what would a sin be? So I'm a Catholic. I'm, uh, you know, from my perspective, or from the Catholic Church's perspective, a sin is something, is a behavior that we choose to engage in that separates us from God. Um, now, that can be a lot of different things, and there are some that are worse than others, obviously. Um, But the seven deadly sins is identified, and it's not just a Catholic thing. I think it's um, a—in fact, one of the reasons I like that motif is that it applies to lots of different religious traditions, but also it resonates with people who are of no religious tradition. Um, The idea that there are are some central faults that human beings engage in, so errors in their judgment, mistakes they make, but not just individual mistakes, but sort of habitual mistakes— Similar kinds of things, um, and what makes them mistakes? Well, they lead to destruction or cost or regret, problems in individual people 's lives, but also in their relationship relationships with other people so now, if we bring it back into the religious perspective, um, sin is you know as I mentioned is you know, a, something that divides us from God, something that um, creates a distance a distance not only. Um, you know, in myself, divides my own self in some way, puts some division between me and other people, other human beings, um, but ultimately um, distinguish, difference, um, distances me from God. Um, if we bring it into the, you know, the economic realm, when I talk about sins, economic sins, something similar, I have something similar in mind. It's an analogy. I don't think it's a perfect match, but it's an analogy. But there's some, there's something similar is that these are things that we tend to think about economic matters, for whatever reason, we're naturally disposed in this way. We're psychologically constructed to view the world this way. Culture seems to incline us to view the world. But there's, these are things that we tend to think about economic matters that turn out, A, not to be true. They're mistakes. Um, but in addition to that, um, they also cause various kinds of destruction, um, foregone prosperity, lots of ways that we could engage in fruitful or productive partnerships with other people that they prevent us from doing so. Um, so in both cases, so the, you know, theological sins distance us from ultimately the good, which is you know the will uh, being with God. Um, and in the sort of more secular sense of economics distinguishes us from the good being, meaning something like, a prosperous and flourishing life, both for ourselves personally and in society. All right. So uh, we've, you've already
2: mentioned in general what you mean by seven deadly economic sins. But do you have like a, a comparable list? So for the seven deadly sins, the traditional ones, we have gluttony, lust, avarice, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. Um, Is there is it are these the same things applied to our economic life or or are they kind of a a new or distinct uh, category?
0: That is a good and fair question. I mean, the short answer to that is in this book, I don't try to make that case that there's any kind of, you know, one to one mapping of um, theological sins, let's say religious sins um, and economic sins. That's not to say that I don't think they're connected. In fact, I think in many ways they are connected, and maybe in a future work, which I am considering, you know, doing a little work on right now, trying to see if there might be something deeper, deeper connection between seven, you know, the deadly sins and economic sins. Um, but for the purposes of this book, there are a few of the uh, of the deadly sins that I think do recur in the economic fallacies that I talk about in the book, um, and one of them, I'll, I'll just mention one just to give you an idea of what I have in mind. But one of them is. The difficulty we often have, we tend to think, and just not in religious terms for a second, but just in economic terms or maybe you know public policy terms. Um, notice how quickly we assume that if somebody has been successful, you started a business, maybe many businesses, and you became very successful. Maybe you're so successful, you became a billionaire. Notice how quickly we assume that if you're a billionaire, you did something bad somewhere along the way. In other words, we assume that if someone has been successful, there must be something, some cause for us to negatively judge that person's character or maybe negatively judge what kind of a person they are more generally. Um, We assume there must be something wrong. I think that might be connected with one of the seven deadly sins, not in all cases, but I think it could be connected with one of the seven deadly sins, which is envy. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the keys to that is that we have a very hard time genuinely taking joy in other people's success. So we see somebody else achieve something, and it's hard for us simply to be joyful for them and for their, um, their achievement. Um, in the Catholic Church, we talk about solidarity. Um, this is one of the important sort of uh, social or public virtues for, um, for the Catholic Church. I think part of what solidarity means is willing the good of another person, willing the good of others. It's a classical definition of love. It is a classical definition of love, and that's where this virtue of solidarity comes from. Ultimately, that's the root of it. Um, I think what envy does is it severs that. It it says, I don't take joy in your success or in in your good, but rather I view your good sort of instrumentally insofar as it helps me in what I want. That's not solidarity. That's not genuine love. Um, but I think that does give rise to, or it's connected with, um, this instinct we seem to have to assume that if other people have been successful in business or in economics, um, we're not happy for them. Often, instead, what we are is we're suspicious of them, I and mean, we maybe even we have you know negative thoughts that we start to generate towards them, which I think can be connected with the same um, that same uh, vice um, of envy that we have in the deadly sins.
2: So I'm curious about this, and uh, this just occurred to me. Uh, that I think we treat inequality unequally as well. So um, I think you're, I've noticed the same phenomenon uh, that people just assume if someone has a lot, they probably got it, you know, through some sort of suspicious means uh, they've taken from someone else, but yet they don't actually apply that to everyone. So use the example in your talk of Jeff Bezos and Michael Jordan. I think people are very uh, inclined to think that about Jeff Bezos but not so inclined to think that about Michael Jordan, well he he played basketball, he was the greatest, he earned <laughs> yeah. it, yeah, right uh, Why is that? Is there something about fame that changes our judgments
0: yeah that 's a good question, and i i 'm um, not sure i 'm equipped really to answer that i mean I, yeah. I have given some thought to that, and i I mean I can give you a couple of speculations okay um, so one speculation is that the good if, so taking those examples Bezos yeah. and Michael Jordan the the good that Jordan provides for society is much more visible everybody's seen it they've seen him it's very easy to notice and see exactly what you get from Michael Jordan i mean he's retired now but you know he, when he was playing people wanted to go watch him and there was that that experience of being entertained by somebody like Michael Jordan that's what he's providing for the world it's easier to see um, on the other hand, ask you know, 10 random people in the United States, what exactly does Jeff Bezos do? Right. Really, I mean, d- describe literally what you think he does on a day-to-day basis. I think most people are going to have really no idea. They're not going to have any idea which is part of the problem. So they don't really know what he does. And I think a lot of times people don't really know what bi- what business people in many industries do. I mean, think about the financial, the financial industry. What is it that a hedge fund do- does? Right. Okay. You know, there are a lot of hedge funds. Mm-hmm. So they must be doing something. A lot of people work at them. Mm-hmm. People are making money. Not, every, not all of them make money, but a lot of them do. And some of them make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, private equity firms. What do these things do? I think a lot of people don't know what they do, can't see what they do, um, but see that they're making a lot of money. And it looks like it's sort of behind the scenes, like in the shadows. Right. You know, they're existing out there in the dark somewhere, but making a lot of money. So that looks suspicious. I think um, what that begins to trigger in a lot of people's minds is a little bit like, I don't know if you recall this play from Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson was a contemporary of William Shakespeare. Ben Johnson wrote this play called The Alchemist. Oh. It's a great play. I recommend it if you mm-hmm. haven't read it. Um, but um, the story is of, of a merchant. And then what does the merchant do? Well, the merchant buys from some people and sells to other people. And somehow between those two points makes a profit. Mm-hmm. So it's like he's an alchemist. like It's some kind yeah. of a magic, you know, that, you know, who knows where this prophet came from? Right. We don't really, but it's got to be wrong. It's some kind of spooky magic or something. Um, and then the lesson from the play is that, well, of course, it's not literally magic. What it is, is he's deceiving people somehow. There's got to be, you know, he's doing something mm. wrong. But I think that's that's a little bit, um, that explains a little bit the difference between people's judgment, of people like Michael Jordan or LeBron James or Steph Curry. Because they see what these, or maybe even you know, entertainment, other entertainers in music and in movies, they go to watch the movies, they listen to the music, and so they have an experience, maybe a personal experience, of what it is that the, those people are providing for the rest of us, the value they're providing. But they have no idea what some of these other industries are doing, and so it just makes it seem very suspicious. All right, so what does
2: it mean? I want to get into your seven. Um try to at least touch on each of them uh, so okay you're gonna test me we'll see maybe this is like the lightning round but it doesn't have to be uh <laughs> what does it mean to say that wealth is positive sum so pizzas for example don't reproduce themselves uh there's zero sum right once the slices are divided up and distributed pizza's gone um aren't the resources of the earth and thus the wealth of our economies, fixed in the same way
0: Ah good question, um, and I' would say the answer is no um, and uh, for an important I think there's a categorical difference um, here's an analogy I would use. Think about the number of keys on a piano. How many keys are on a piano eighty eight okay um, does that mean that the number of songs we can write is limited because it's a finite number of keys? only so many songs you can write well, in some sense, I suppose that's true um, but so if it's not literally an infinite number of songs that can be written, it's indefinitely many. And we sure haven't gotten anywhere close to the total number of songs. Mm-hmm. Um, or if you think about things like um, the alphabet, how many letters are there in the English language? Only 26. That must mean that there are only so many poems that can be written or books. or No, that's not how it works. So yes, there are limited, um, you know, limited tools with which to work. But with human creativity, the number of potential outcomes or arrangements, configurations and reconfigurations that are possible is effectively limitless. Um, now, there are some ways, and I think this is maybe what some people have in mind when they think about you know, our limited resources. Well, you know, if, if we wanted to heat our homes and the only way we could come up with heating our homes was to burn down the forests around us, okay, well, we could do that and we would lose all those resources and that would not last very long. Um, on the other hand, what human beings have proved themselves quite um, um, quite capable of doing, really, to an astonishing and I think in some ways underappreciated degree, is creatively rethinking how to use what we have so that we can actually get more from less. Um, so the the wealth is positive sum. So does it mean that you know eventually we you know we, there might come a time in the future when we would not have any resources left or we would have used them all that's theoretically possible. Um, is that in the offing now? No way, not even close. Um, and, and remember too, that people have been making precisely that prediction for a long time and they keep making these predictions. And it turns out, you know, what happens is that, you know, we figure something out. And when I say we, it doesn't mean, you know, you and I necessarily.
2: (laughs) No, we definitely not us. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to (laughs) be us.
0: You know, one of the great things about being a professor, I like to tell business people that is I'm glad you're actually doing something so that I can talk about it. (laughs) Um, but human beings figure things out and um, it doesn't mean they solve all problems but they're remarkably creative species and I think by far the most creative and I would add if you'd allow me to make a, one kind of um, sure. a bit of a religious remark about this you know speaking from my own faith um, so I believe all human beings are made in the image and likeness of God we are created in the image and likeness of God what does that mean it means lots of things but one of the things it means is that when I think about what is God well among other things a creator yeah and When we're made in the image and likeness of God, that's what we are too. We are creators. Hmm. And I think we are uniquely creators among all species on earth. Other species can move things around. They engage in zero-sum transactions with the environment. Mm -hmm. Human beings engage in positive-sum transactions. We create more. We generate more than there was before. Um, And I think in some ways, I think that's part of our identity. That's part of who we are. It's part of our calling.
2: So that's a good transition to the next one. So, if wealth isn't zero-sum, but is created through human labor, yes. creativity, does that mean that wealth is simply a matter of the labor put into producing it?
0: Ah, uh, good question. Also, no. also,
2: yep. if labor is all that matters, couldn't the government just pay people to dig holes and fill them back up again? <laughs> Shouldn't that grow the economy? Uh, isn't that a way of just, you know, being creative?
0: Well, that's a way of working. That's true. <laughs> um, wouldn't be a way of uh, being creative, no. Um, so, um does wealth come from human labor? Yes, um, does that mean that um, labor creates the value? No, and that's an important reason why that's not the case and it 's easy to see why you might why one might think that. Mm-hmm. A lot of really smart people have thought that yeah uh, not just um, Karl Marx, but also uh, Adam Smith seemed to think of something like that. Um, he was a little bit I think yeah, in it. a few factors. But yeah, yeah, but, yeah that was but, one of them uh, but um, but he did seem to be attracted to this idea that human that labor creates a value. What I think we have been able to figure out in the intervening years since Smith and Marx um, and what I think is actually true is that um, when you think about the labor that goes into creating wealth, that's looking at only one side of the partnership, as it were. The other side of the partnership is who am I creating this for? What is it for you? When I do something for you, yes, it's my labor that created this good or this service or whatever it is I'm creating for you. But the value of it it comes from you. In other words... What do you think it does for you? How does it improve your life? So it may well be, and in fact, I think this is the goal, that um, the cost to me in my, in my labor, let's say, or my time, my time, my talent, my treasure, um, to create any particular good or service or thing in the world, um, the cost to me should be outweighed by the value to you. Hmm. If it's not outweighed by the value to you, then maybe I should be doing something else. I should yeah. think of something else to do. Um, now, how do I know if it is? Well, do you want it? What is a value to you? And when you think about, so is it just the labor that creates the value? So you need the labor. Without the human labor, there is no value. But mm-hmm. when I'm trying to come to some kind of estimate of what the value is, you have to think about what it means to other people. And it's not just my labor. It's what um, improvement it, it makes or how it um, benefits their lives. Hmm. Which is a completely different question. Yeah. And more beautiful when you think about it. It's not just me, it's us together. It's what I have to right. pay attention to what, what benefits you as well. Yeah. Uh, I think of it as a term that I think is unfortunate, has
2: fallen out of the history of economics, but the division of labor used to be called economic cooperation. Oh. Right? Uh, you know, everybody harps on competition, which is not a bad thing, but. Sometimes I think it is. Um, but there was this whole other aspect that people Absolutely. thought was just as essential, was how we cooperate And we are really the another.
0: cooperative species. That's what we do. Yeah. That's, that's our, to use another economic term, that's our comparative advantage. Yeah. You know, we, we don't have claws and fur mm-hmm. and wings and te- you know, big, sharp teeth. We can't run very fast. We're not very strong. Mm-hmm. So we're easy prey. How is it that we've been able to accomplish what we, well, because we can do things like work together. Yeah. We use our reason, we use our speech, and we coordinate and find plans and discover and and we're creative. That's really what's our superpower, not any of those (laughs) other things. All
2: right. So I'm going to keep going here. Okay. If wealth can be created, but its production has to satisfy consumer demand, how do we determine what to make? Is there a government agency that expertly sets the agenda for industry every year? Maybe a supercomputer?
0: Well, yeah. So um, <laughs> how do we decide what to make? Um, well, if we could figure that out, um, then, we would, could, you know, then we might be a lot further along than we actually are. Yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the endemic features of human nature, I think, um, which can be enormously frustrating or spectacularly glorious, depending on your sp- perspective, is that human beings are unpredictable. You can't always predict what a human being is going to want, what they're going to do, how they're going to react to things in their environment, including their other, what de- decisions other people make. Um, we just can't predict. Um, other species, other processes on Earth, we can, we're getting a lot better at making predictions. Human beings is very difficult to predict. So what does that mean? It means that what are people going to want a year from now? It's impossible. There's literally nobody who knows. So when we say, well, we want to have... Um, you know, we want to allocate our resources in such a way that we don't put them on failing ventures. We want to put them only on the good ideas, not the bad ideas. Yeah, Absolutely. Sure. We can all agree. I think everybody, you know, on wherever you are on the political or economic spectrum, we agree with that. The question is, how do you know? And human beings are not given to know the future. And there are so many variables involved, including game theoretic variables. In other words, you know, suppose you've had every day for the last month, you've had a bagel for breakfast. Okay. So if somebody, and I, and suppose I know that somebody Mm -hmm. asks me, well, what's going to have for breakfast tomorrow? I'm going to guess a bagel. Now, does that mean you're going to have a bagel? (laughs) Who knows? There's no way to know. And what are you going to have for breakfast a month from now? Well, um, not even, you know that. (laughs) So there's literally not a person on earth who has that information, can't know that information, which means that we can't allocate resources only towards bagels. I mean, this morning, what did you say you had for breakfast this morning? You had uh, Fruit, uh, bacon, and eggs. Fruit, bacon, and eggs. Yeah, okay. So you didn't even have a bagel this morning. Oh, bagel. Um, So you would have ruined my beautiful plan if I had uh, come up with bagels. Um, So there isn't anybody who has this information. The information doesn't exist to be known. So what's the alternative then? What do we do? What we do is we allow people to make uh, experiments. We have to let hundreds, thousands, millions of experiments, knowing that many of them will fail, maybe most of them will fail, Some of them will succeed, but even the ones that succeed, they'll only succeed for a little while because human nature and human society is constantly changing, Um, just like the rest of nature. To be alive is to be in motion, is to move and is to change. That's true for human beings, too. They're constantly changing and they're constantly um, moving, changing their ideas about things. That's what makes them, I think, um, glorious and spectacular. Um, but they're unpredictable. So you just have to let people um, have lots of experiments knowing that many of them will fail, but some of them will succeed. And some of them, the ones that succeed will actually improve human life.
2: It makes me think, uh, I don't know how much it improves human life, but one of the few things I do produce is I write and I write, uh, you know, academic articles, but also essays and some of those essays get published, right? Mm -hmm. And it always seems to be the one that I think is the greatest. Oh, this is like the best thing I've ever written that no one wants to publish, (laughs) right? And it's the other one that's like, well, I had this idea and I wrote it, so I guess I'll send it to someone that right away I get a response. Oh, this is great. We're going to publish it tomorrow, (laughs) you know, um, that you just can't know. You can't know what other people are going to want today or tomorrow. Um, You got to try it. Um, One
0: way to think about that too, if I may, one way to think about that is, um, so Art Carden and Economist Art Carden and Deirdre McCloskey have this phrase. They, they call it a trade-tested betterment. Yes. Yep. Um, so how do you know if you're actually improving the world or improving other people's lives? You have to test it against uh, what do other people want. Mm-hmm. And you can think I came up with the best idea or I wrote the best paper, um, but you got to let other people take a look at it, and that's how you really find out.
2: Yeah. All right. So moving on to the next one. So let's grant the, what really matters for wealth creation. Are the freedom for people to produce, own, consume what they need? Um, why was global wealth more or less static for most of human history? Shouldn't progress and economic growth just be inevitable if it's something that humans do? How come it took us so long to do it?
0: Yeah, that's that's a much harder question than anything in my book or <laughs> might suggest. I mean, you know, I I, I tell a story about um, that I draw on other thinkers from, but about. A change in sort of outlook that human beings had. Um, late sixteenth, 17th century, moving into the 18th century, you begin to have these inklings, and more and more people have this idea that, um, that treating other, that we morally ought to treat other people in a certain kind of way and not in another way. How should we treat them? Well, maybe we can be better off. I can be better off if I treat you more as an opportunity than an enemy. Um, And maybe we start to enable ourselves to have positive sum, maybe mutually voluntary and positive sum uh, transactions, rather than me just stealing from you and getting what I can. I think people start to believe that that's a moral way to deal with other people. Um, In fact, maybe even morally required, that it's morally wrong to simply steal from others or to enslave others or to take their land. Um, Now, that as that idea takes hold and spreads and more and more people seem to have that moral outlook i think that explains the spectacular increase well i'll be more careful in my language it correlates with the spectacular increase in wealth that, um, that we've seen in the world but your question is actually a harder one than just that um it's why did that idea happen when it did and where it did as opposed to some other time and place yeah. and that i don't have a good answer for um and I think that's – if you can figure that out, you'll win the Nobel Prize. You should publish that, <laughs> uh, that essay. I mean there are a lot of very, uh, very smart people, smarter people than me working on this right now. I'm trying to figure this out, but it's very hard to piece together because it does seem to be reliant on something like a shift in the way we view other people. Um, so if you think about – so Voltaire visited the, um, the, the Royal Stock Exchange in London. Um And he looked at it and said he thought it was remark- he couldn 't believe what was going on there because, as he says you have the um you have the Jewish person the varieties of Protestants who are there, Catholics, you have Muslims, you have people from all you know these different ethnicities and and particularly he was struck by different religious views yeah. who outside of the exchange wanted to as he says slit each other 's throats. <laughs> Then they yes. go into the exchange, and suddenly none of that matters anymore. And the only thing that matters now is if you and I strike a deal, are you going to keep your word? Mm-hmm. So the only, he, as he says, uh, the only apostate is the one who doesn't keep his word. <laughs> we don't care what your view about God is. And then when you're done, at the end of the day, okay, then you know you go into a temple, you go into you go here, you put a hat on, you don't put a hat right. on, and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so why is it that there's something about this kind of exchange um, that helps people put away other? You know other animosities that they might have towards one another, and why did that begin to happen in some places rather than other places? Maybe it had something to do with Christianity. I put that. You know, I say maybe. Um, so I think it's certainly consistent with certain Christian views to view other people as possessors of dignity, um, created in the image and likeness of God. So. The way you deal with them, and you can tell, you can understand how that might mean that the way you deal with them is by asking them permission and having cooperative, cooperative transactions rather than enslaving them, et cetera. Mm. Um, and so, you can see how that would fit with that. But on the other hand, why didn't that take hold? You know, a couple hundred years earlier, or five hundred years earlier, or a thousand years earlier? Yeah. Why didn't it take hold in other places? I think that's a much more complicated question, and I don't think we have a good answer to that.
2: So moving on from progress, I, I, I wish I could contribute to that, but I, don't, I, have, I have a lot of thoughts, but I think I'd just <laughs> sidetrack us. Um, it seems no matter what economic problem we face at any given time, there will always be someone who will loudly proclaim that the problem is greed, one of the traditional deadly sins. Yeah. Um, to what extent is greed an economic problem? Do companies ever put profits over people? Isn't the market all about people acting in their own greedy self-interest? Uh, shouldn't Christians and other concerned people reject the market economy in society the same way they ought to reject greed in their
0: souls? Well, I would say maybe, um, but, okay. I would, but I would, enter, I would invite um, the Christian critics that you're, you're thinking about to, to entertain this possibility. Um, so I think greed or the impulse towards greed, like other vices, <laughs> um, those are always there. They're part of the human condition. Um, so the, those temptations don't ever go away. Um, and I think they are present in any system of political economy or any system of economics, any system of politics. There are always going to be people who, to take to just focus on this example, who are greedy, and not just individuals who are particularly greedy, but the susceptibility towards greed is in all of us, um, even otherwise virtuous people. So, pick the most virtuous person present or historical that you can think of. They probably had the you know the temptation towards greed and maybe in, in, indulge it occasionally. So here's what I would say about um, you know, to the economic question. Um, if it's the case that greed is always going to be part of our souls, or the temptation to greed is always going to be part of our souls, and there will be some people who will indulge it to much greater extents than others, but there will never be a time when that's not part of human life. Then the political or economic question becomes not what sort of um, system of institutions would we like to have if— human beings were not susceptible to greed, but rather, given that they are susceptible to greed, which institutions seem like we could maybe get the best good out of us despite the fact that we are susceptible to greed. That's a very different kind of conversation. So there are some systems of political economy, some advocates of uh, systems of political economy who make an assumption, sometimes explicit, sometimes implicitly, that, well, What we really need to do is to change human nature a little bit. Um, You know, we need to to improve human beings so that they, and and this is a chief one, so that they, you know, for example, they pay much less attention to their self-interest and much more attention to the interests of others. Um, That's really a way of saying maybe we should change the way human beings are, and maybe there's some way that we could do that. Um, the the, the, The possibility I would suggest that these Christian critics you were talking about might Um, might consider is suppose we can't get we can't change human nature we can affect it on the margins but it's really rather than being like clay that we can put into any shape we want it's more like a piece of hard plastic that you can kind of bend with a lot of concerted effort but as soon as you let go it kind of pops back if that's the way human nature is um, then that changes the way we should think about institutions and so then we should start thinking about our, uh, our life on earth including with our public institutions as not being, well, what would be perfect if we could get perfect human beings or we could uh, closely approximate perfection, what kinds of institutions would we want, but rather, given our fallen nature, and given that our fallen nature is permanent, <laughs> at least on Earth, um, what kinds of institutions are relatively less bad or relatively better, maybe even the least bad, given the actually available alternatives? If you're willing to entertain that, then I think um, you know, market economies now come into the conversation in a way that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise. Mm. So, how would to maybe follow up on that, would
2: you say that that is fundamental to markets, that it is, it, it's is—it's unleashing people's greed or avarice, or is that a misunderstanding?
0: Oh. Uh, no, yeah. Sorry. Do you want to go finish it? Is there more uh, to that So, well, the other yeah.
2: side would be to say, you know, the way you framed it sounds almost a little bit like, uh, you know, Bernard Mandeville's, you know, oh, uh, yeah. private mm-hmm. vice, public benefit. Yeah. I don't quite think that's your perspective, so I want to I want to kind of clarify or I don't allow think, you to clarify. Yes, yeah, so I um, think
0: I think uh, greed is a vice, um, yeah. and it is a vice, which means it's something we should avoid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it is the sort of thing that we can, you know, what's what's the virtue? The virtue is to um, rightly orient our desires. Um, I mean, that's kind of a v- general way of saying it, but um, rather than focusing only on my own um, uh, my own good which may be at the expense of other people, but rather I see that the right, the correct or the right orientation of my desires um, is that, um, that I succeed when I'm succeeding with others and we succeed together rather than at, at each other's expense. So I think what greed can be, and one way to think about it, and I would distinguish that from self-interest, so maybe self-interest is sort of a you know, more general term. Um, greed is, um, well, I want what I want even if that means at your expense, and what matters to me is what I want, and so sometimes that'll be in cooperation with you sometimes that'll be at your expense it all depends on the circumstances, but what matters is what's you know what i'm getting out of it that's the vice or that's that's a way of yeah. understanding the vice yeah um, what I think um, say a market economy for example would say would um, y- y- do you get people like that? Yes, you do. Mm. But what it can do, if a, if you have a market economy that's properly functioning, which is a big if, <laughs> um, is that um, it enables people to have a different sort of um, approach to life, which is, there are things I would like to accomplish in life, both in my own character and in serving others, including people I love, my my own family, my friends, my community, my God, maybe my country, et cetera. Um, Serving all of those interests are still mine in some sort of, you know, kind of a trivial way because I'm interested in my family and I'm interested in my country and I'm interested in God, et cetera. Um, But they're not in the the robust way that we tend to think of when we think about Mandeville, which is, you know, I care about me and devil take the hindmost. But what markets can do, they don't always do this in fact, but what they can do is um, enable sort of both of those people to think that, well, one way that I can develop, I can serve those interests is in cooperation with others engaging in various kinds of partnerships, associations, which include business associations, not limited to that, but could include business associations. And even the greedy person, um, if the only way that the greedy person can get what he wants is by benefiting somebody else first, okay, then that's sort of the Mandevillian argument. Well, maybe that's the most we can hope for such people. Are there such people in the world? I suppose, um, yes, there probably, you know, will there always be at least some people who are just inveterately greedy like that, I suppose, maybe you could get some institutions that could get some good out of them even despite themselves. Um, but um, putting that, those, you know, those cases aside, um, what I think economics suggests is that um, one, you know, one aspect of being a human being who's, yes, self-interested in this expanded sense and also interested in, um, interested in others um, is allowing a kind of creative expression. So giving them the scope to become who they are and to figure out, how they can benefit not only themselves but others at the same time, and maybe benefit, you know, improve my life by improving yours. That seems to me a, a way of, you know, imagining what a, a system of political economy could be um, that's both morally attractive and economically attractive, it leads to prosperity and morality. Yeah, it makes me think of uh, you know Adam
2: Smith. Uh, it's often kind of misunderstood, in which he says exchange happens when we think of the self-interest of someone else. Right, so. Uh, you know, the butcher sells the meat to the hungry person because they say, aren't you hungry? Wouldn't you like to eat this meat? Right. Um, not woe is me. I need to feed my family. Please buy some of my meat. Right. right. He doesn't appeal to their humanity. He appeals to their self-love. Uh, but it's not in the sense of this kind of greediness or, or the butcher, you know, appealing to his own self-interest. He's looking at the other people and that's how he serves his needs. Right. Yeah. No, I think um, that's a nice point. So and I think I, a very Smithian uh, direction, I think. Yeah, that no, I think it's it nice to say. That. Yeah. All right. We've got a few more. Every few years, usually but not limited to election years, the topic of inequality becomes a focus of our national conversations. Now, we've already established uh, that wealth isn't a fixed sum to be distributed. So we'll set aside you know, any concerns based on that misconception. Uh, people often say that money is power. And as Lord Acton put it, power tends to corrupt. Uh, To what extent do economic inequalities in our societies lead to inequalities of power and opportunity? And what, if anything, can or should be done about that?
0: Yeah, that's a a good question. It's a big and complex question. Um, So so I would say, I guess, two things. Um, One is there can be a direct and what I would consider to be unjust effect of economic inequality um, when... um, when economic inequality leads to or partners with political inequality, so if there are um, privileges and benefits and rights, legal rights, that can be um, that are uh, differentially distributed by the government, um, and if those can be in effect bought, um, then, yeah, then what you're getting is um, people being treated differently. Um, by the law, by their government, uh, based on how much money they have, um, in the in the business or economic realm, that's sometimes called cronyism. But I think it goes beyond even cronyism because cronyism uh, implies, well, you know, I'm I'm paying regulator, I'm figuring out a way to you know to to rig the system of regulation or of a policy so that it benefits me at my competitor's expense. There's plenty of that that goes on, which I you know I um, think would fall under that category of injustice that I was talking about, but. I think it, it's, it goes beyond even that because um, if it's the case that the more wealth you have, the more privilege you're able to um, – to, I mean, buy is a strong word. But uh, influence the way the government treats certain kinds of people as opposed to other kinds of people, making exceptions in laws for certain kinds of people that it doesn't make for other kinds of people, then that's not directly the same thing as cronyism. But it is a way that I would say is an unjust kind of inequality that can result from wealth. And I think the main problem from that is if we have a, you know, the mechanisms of government that are available to be bought effectively by the highest bidder and there are plenty of cases where that's actually – where that's true. Um, so that's one part of this uh, that I would uh, worry that I would have about uh, wealth um, leading – inequalities in wealth leading to injustice, sort of a legal injustice. But I do think there is another kind, um, and here I part ways uh, maybe with some of the economists that I like to talk about in my book, and I've talked to others. Um, I think um, Adam Smith, actually, you you mentioned Adam Smith, uh, had, um, had an insight about this. We tend to pay attention to the wealthy. The wealthier people are, a family is, a person is, we tend to pay attention to them. Now, why that is exactly is a, you know, that's another story, but um, it seems to be the case that we do. What I think that means is that wealth, the more wealth a person has, the more influence on the culture that person can have. Uh, and it becomes outsized. So it's not just, you know, all of us have some influence on the culture. Um, but, you know, a wealthy person or an extremely wealthy person can have many times, orders of magnitude more influence on a particular culture than, well, I won't speak for you, than I could have. Um, So that I think does become quite or can become quite worrisome. So if you're you're living in a society in which the differentials of wealth can be a thousand times, a hundred thousand times or more, in other words, huge differentials in wealth, then what that can lead to is huge differentials in effect on the culture. Um, And that can become quite worrisome. Now, the other question, I mean, the follow-up, natural follow-up question is, well, what do we do about it? Mm That's much more complicated um, because what you don't want to do is try to enact some kind of policy that would make that actually worse, and that could very easily be the case. Um, And I don't think there's an easy answer to what to do about that. um, But I would say maybe the first step is to diagnose it correctly, to realize that yeah, we tend to have this strange obsession with people who have a lot of wealth, um, but. That doesn't mean that they should be accorded any more authority in the culture or any more authority in how I lead my life because that wealthy person leads his or her life like that doesn't mean that I should lead my life like that or that I should let my children take that as a role model as opposed to some other role model that I might help my children to appreciate. Um, So I think the first step in figuring out how to solve that problem is just the diagnosis of it.
2: All right. So proponents of free markets are often derided as free market fundamentalists. Perhaps that's a term that's been directed at you before. I don't know. Uh, What are the limits of free markets? Where, if ever, do markets fail? Uh, When should efficiency be set aside for ethical concerns?
0: Um, I think there are plenty of people. So I'll give you a quick answer about that. I think there are plenty of people who could be, you know, not completely... Uh, unfairly described as a free market fundamentalist, as it were. Um, I don't think that would be – that's a proper application of me. I think uh, – so my own view is that markets are a powerful tool. Um, one of the most powerful tools human beings have been able to discover to um, that enables them to use scarce resources for ever greater benefit. Um, we just haven't come up with anything quite like that. On the other hand, like any other tool, it's limited. So no single tool solves all problems. Um, so if you think about markets, you know, should you have a market in your family life in your home? No, that would be terrible. That would be a disaster. Um, so is it the case that markets, um, that markets are powerful aggregators of information, um, give us very strong signals about what the best ways to allocate resources of, you know, commodities is? Yes. Um, does that mean that there isn't anything beyond markets that we should uh, – any other considerations that we should take uh, into cons- – any other elements that we should take into consideration when we're thinking about how to lead a good life or a virtuous life or how to be a good husband or wife or father or mother, et cetera. No, absolutely not. It is a tool, a powerful tool. But like others, it requires moral judgment to know when to use it and even when to use it, how to use it, when you should use it. It reminds me a little bit um – Ronald Coase,
2: his theory of the firm that, you know, the, the business uh, in the world exchanges and, you know, is dealing with other businesses, with consumers. But internally, it doesn't do everything based oh, yeah. on exchange mm-hmm. at all. In fact, it couldn't even operate yeah. that way. No. Um, no. So, yes, there are absolutely uh, just fundamental Clear limits, limits yeah. I think. Um, all right. So, let's end on a practical note. Okay. Um, <laughs> given your analysis of these seven deadly economic sins, what should people do? What... Sermon? Might you preach to a concerned normal person? Uh, so I, I have a very blue collar background, and I always think I try to. I do write academic stuff, but like my book is aimed at normal people, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, people like I went to high school. You know, people that to me that I still think of myself that way, even though I know I'm a nerd and I'm not. But um, but like, how do you? What's the takeaway? You know, where would where? How would you kind of grandstand in favor of uh, you know people preach the analogy being, of course, a preacher preaching, warning people about. Sin in their life, but also yeah. calling them to something higher.
0: Yeah. Um, I might uh, start with, so if I only get one sermon, that's a tough one. In fact, uh, maybe that's a book that you and I should write together, again, <laughs> the, your one sermon. If you got to get one sermon to give, what would it be? <laughs> um, so um, just off the cuff, so I, one good place to make, protect, perhaps start, or I think would, uh, a good place to start would be with the parable of the talents. Um, so that's one that I think is underappreciated, but I think actually connects with a lot of the themes in my book. Um, So this is a story where the master leaves, you know, he's he's leaving and he leaves his talents, meaning his his rations of wealth in charge in the uh, in the charge of several of his servants. Um, And he gives them different talents of wealth to take care of based on um, their abilities that they've shown in the past. And then the master leaves and comes back. um, And when he comes back, he says, all right, show me what you did with it. And, you know, one, you know. Uh, one uh, servant says, well, you know, I doubled it. I took your money and went to the marketplace and we traded and did various things, doubled it. The master says, uh, very good. Um, um, we're going to give you even more reward. Um, then we have another one who says, well, you know, I, I, I made this increase. It wasn't quite a double, but I did was able to do this. And you know, well done. You did the best according to what you were able to do. And we get to one who says, you know, what do you do? And the master says, what did you do? And this this poor servant says, well, I, I was so afraid of losing it, I buried it in the ground. So here's, I have it for you. This is it, what you gave me. I just didn't increase it at all. Um, and, um, you know, what does our Lord say that the master says to that one? Says, uh, uh, you're going to get cast out. You know, you're going to go wail and gnash your teeth because I gave you something. And the purpose of that was for you to do, to make something of it. I think that in a way is a very powerful lesson for what our job on earth is. Each of us is given different talents and abilities and skills. So talents and not in the sense of, you know, a ration of wealth, but different talents. Um, And we're in different situations and different positions in the world and we face different circumstances, et cetera. Um, But, you know, in my view, we're uniquely positioned by God to play a role in the unfolding of God's providence. But even if you don't believe that, I don't think you have to, be, um, have to believe and have a theological view to think that, well, you're still unique. Each of us is unique. There's no other human being quite like us. The particular situation any one of us is in is unique. Nobody else is in exactly the same situation any of us is. Um, and we have some gifts that are unearned. They're not all the same gifts, but there are some gifts. You have some gifts. I have. Some, we all have something. So what's our obligation in light of that? The gift not just of life, but some time, some talent, some treasure in some circumstances. I think our obligation is to think about how can we be worthy of those? How can we use our gifts in such a way that we can create value in the world, not just for me, but for others at the same time? Um, And that's exactly what the parable of talents is, I think, telling us we're called to do. Don't worry that somebody else got more talents than you did or less talents than you did. I mean, that's going to happen. Think about you and what are you capable of? What value can you create in the world? What joy, love, charity? How can you make the world better um, in your little tiny corner of it, given what, you're, what um, situation you're facing? Um, and we're called to figure that out and to do our best um, to try to actually increase. So, so the world becomes better off for us having been in it rather than the opposite. Um, So if I had one sermon, I think that's where I would start. Well, very good. Dr. Addison, thank you for joining us. That's my pleasure. Thank you very much.
1: As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Zhaja.